0: Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Do you find yourself repeating the same patterns that you know are not good for you? Do you have an internal voice saying you must dot 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 or you'll never dot dot dot? Perhaps you're confused about why you're unhappy, sad, trapped, but can't get to the bottom of it. These are all signs you might need to heal your lost inner child. My witness today is Robert Jackman, who is a board-certified psychotherapist and the author of Healing Your Lost Inner Child, How to Stop Impulsive Reactions, Set Healthy Boundaries, and Embrace an Authentic Life. And another book on the same theme, Healing Your Wounded Relationship, How to Break Free of Codependent Patterns and Restore Your Loving Partnership details of both books will be in the show notes. So, Robert, when did you first realize that you had a lost inner child?
2: That's a great question. I was fortunate enough to uh, see a therapist in my 20s who knew of this work, and he began taking me through the process of this unfolding, of helping me understand that so many of my reactions that I was having In my adult life, originated in childhood. And of course, this was all new to me. I didn't understand the concept at all. But as our conversations began to unfold, it made a lot of sense to me because I wasn't understanding in my 20s why my relationships were just very distorted. And I felt like I was doing so much work to try to keep those relationships. Essentially, I was giving so much power away. Uh, my own power away to try to make them work. And so he really helped me understand the concept of the inner child as well as boundary setting. And that really transformed my early life and helped me regain a sense of self. And so that, that began sort of my lifelong quest to understand more about the inner child. And since that time, I've studied with John Bradshaw and Claudia Black and Pia Melody, who were all these modern-day champions, way showers for the inner child, really helping me kind of expand that work.
0: Now, I don't think anybody who listens to this podcast is going to be at all surprised to discover that the lost inner child starts in your childhood. So tell me about your childhood and how you were sort of effectively trained, in a sense, to become a therapist.
2: <laughs> well, that's totally true. I grew up in a very loving home, but like most households, it was dysfunctional in its own way. So I, I'm lucky in that I knew my mom and dad loved me. I felt cherished by them. But what I wasn't understanding as a boy was why there was so much chaos and upset. And I didn't understand really what it meant to be growing up in a household where my dad would drink and rage. And so from that, you know, I began to create this toolkit that I call of coping. So I developed these, for me, it was, okay, I'll be quiet, I'll be perfect, I'll do everything they ask in my egocentric state as a little boy, I thought that I was controlling the household. So I thought, okay, if I'm perfect, then they won't argue sort of thing. And so that began my early training, my early codependent training, essentially, of developing these, these wounded tools to adapt to this situation.
0: So you were hypervigilant, weren't you?
2: Very much. So I was on the edge of the chair watching everything, taking everything in, reading expressions, reading the mood. I think I was always empathic, but that sort of expanded everything. So I would watch my mom and dad and say, okay, who do I need to be so they feel better? And so I developed this, I call it a biomatrix in a way of this sense of, okay, if they're doing this, then I need to do that. And so I kept on changing myself, adapting myself to wherever they were.
0: And in a sense, you were taking all your feelings and burying them deep inside you, weren't you?
2: Totally. And, and uh, I just would store them in my gut. So I began having all these intestinal problems. I didn't understand why, but I was essentially swallowing my feelings. So it's been a A phenomenal experience for me as time has gone on to look back into my childhood and really understand how hard I was working to try to make that environment functional for me. So essentially, all of our adaptive responses were trying to make our outside world emotionally safe for ourselves.
0: And the picture that when I was reading about your childhood that has sort of stuck with me the most, and, you know, I feel quite pained actually saying it, is you used to go into your bedroom and you didn't just cry, but you cried face down. So, you know, if somebody actually opened the door, they wouldn't actually even see that you were crying, that even in your own bedroom, you had to hide your tears. I mean, that is, I just feel so sad for that child. Hmm.
2: Well, I really thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that, and I appreciate that tenderness. Yes, you're right. I was trying to hide that from my mom and dad. So I was trying to protect them from the feelings that I had. And in many ways, I I didn't feel that I should or could have those feelings. So I was like, I need to hide this. I need to put this away because it went against the idea that I needed to be perfect for them, right? So, you know, me crying and me being upset was like, well, that's just going to upset them more. I can understand why
0: you have a, a lost inner child because, I mean, it was lost face down on that bed. Does everybody have a lost inner child or is it only people who, I say only, people who have trauma with a capital T?
2: <laughs> well, I believe that we all have some wounding that that was developed in childhood, meaning that we all experienced different things in our family of origins that we took in and said, okay, this is upsetting to me. How do I want to respond to it? And so either people begin to shut down and withdraw and be quiet, or they become big and loud and they push that energy out. But all of those are adaptive responses to that situation. And so I call them the wounded tools that we then bring into our adult life, and then we just keep using them over and over. So when I work with someone in my practice, and they're coming in, and they're saying, well, I was yelling at him, and I was yelling at her, and I'll be like, okay, well, what's that about? You know, and so we we look at that, and of course, the root of that is a fear but that was a a learned response that they felt safer that way as a child or as an adolescent to yell back. So that's how I look at all of that.
0: And in some ways, it sort of works. And that's, I think, actually what makes it really so difficult to unpick later, because your strategy, in a sense... Did work because can you imagine how chaotic that household would be if you were sounding off as well as your father and your mother? I mean, it would have just been hell on earth rather than just sort of ghastly, ghastly, ghastly.
2: (laughs) Well, that's true. You know, my reaction to them was as the peacemaker. So that was essentially my role in the household the peacemaker, the caretaker, the fixer. And my sister talks about my sister is seven years younger than I. And she talks about that when I went away to school, so I went out of state to school, I left, which at the time I felt this is like I'm retiring. I'm retiring from a <laughs> job, <laughs> right? I'm like I am out of here. College, <laughs> easy, <laughs> easy. I can do that. <laughs> and I was just like, really excited to leave. But my sister talks about that when I left, essentially I packed up all of those wounded tools, took them with me to school, and I had been shielding her from all of this stuff. And then she was then thrown into the middle of this chaotic environment, and she did not have the toolkit that I had. And so she really struggled with that.
0: I think a lot of people are going to be saying at this precise moment,
2: Funny he became a therapist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I know. There's no coincidences here. You know, I talk about in my latest book on grief and loss, I talk about my loss of innocence, meaning that my mom would overshare with me what was going on with she and my dad. And, you know, as a young teenage boy, this was overwhelming to me. You know, and of course, in therapy, we call it enmeshment. And so she was oversharing. I didn't know what to do with all of that. And so I would take it all in, take it all in and probably storing it in my gut and giving her my best teenage boy therapy wisdom. But after so many years, I just said, Mother, I think you just need to divorce him. You know, like I was just I was out of (laughs) any any responses. I'm like this. I don't know what else to tell you, but. You're right. That was my early childhood education in therapy work.
0: <laughs> my family never spoke about anything important. So, you know, funny, I become a, a therapist who spends all his time talking about important things like um, wounded children. So how could the wounding show up? So if somebody's thinking, have I got a lost in a child? How might it be showing up today?
2: It shows up in so many ways. And in my Healing or in Your Lost Inner Child book, I give 89 different ways, which is probably way too many, but I wanted to make sure that people got the point. So it could be where they're shutting down, withdrawing, hiding, minimizing, overcompensating, they're escaping into drugs or alcohol, they're uh, getting large, big, they're blaming, projecting. So anything that basically is not a kind of a grounded response, tends to be connected to this wounding from childhood. Particularly anger is a
0: very good way of actually defending yourself against being hurt.
2: Well, exactly. And of course, we need anger. Anger is not a bad emotion to have. We need it to defend ourselves. But most people use that as the go-to. But we're looking then okay, let's look at what's under that anger. Is that hurt? Is that a sense of betrayal? What's there?
0: Now, I just love this quote from your book about our, our wounding is an inconvenient truth we wish would just go away. And we have some techniques for making it go away that I see all the time in my therapy room, and I really love these. So I think we're going to work through these five ones I've pulled out of the ways that we hide the lost inner child from your book, and perhaps you can talk to me about them. The mm-hmm. first one is discounting.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think that that when more people do that than they, they realize, I think that where they're pushing down, pushing away their sense of self and honor where they're saying, oh, well, that's not anything or others have had it worse or where they're really not honoring their experience. It reinforces the narrative of less than. So it reinforces that was nothing, other people have had it worse, all of those sorts of expressions where they're saying, I'm not even worthy to hold my wounding.
0: And if your friends are listening to your stories of your childhood with their mouths open, that might just be a, a clue that you're discounting. The next yeah. one is normalising the abnormal. I suspect this might have been one of your specialities as a child.
2: Well, very much because, of course, in our childhood families, this is all we know. So we're, we're looking around and we're seeing the dysfunction And you as I have probably talked with folks where they come in and they'll say, well, this horrible thing happened, that horrible thing happened, and they're reading it off like a uh, grocery list. They're telling us this stuff, this horrific things, like it's nothing. So they have essentially become immune in a way to the intensity of the trauma but that's, of course, the survival mechanism. I mean, that's how they survived it then. And that's how they're still surviving it today, because it's almost like too hot for them to touch. And so they're staying in this very protected space, almost where there's a lot of cotton between them and the reality of that trauma. You know, so we, we need to honor that. But it definitely is, is continuing. This trauma is still sort of churning inside of them the whole time. And sometimes the thing they're normalizing
0: actually is quite normal. I'm waving my fingers in the air, like a, right. a, your parents got divorced. And yes, mm-hmm. lots of other children in your class, their parents might have got divorced. But, you know, mm-hmm. you're hiding the fact that this was a particularly bitter divorce with, you know, tears and uh, anger and uh, flouncing backs and forwards. So that even if it is sort of quite common, it doesn't actually mean that. This was normal in your family. Am I making any sense?
2: Yeah, and I think that that is akin to the discounting, you know, because what we're saying is we're trying to make our experience not bad. So we're, I think, in in those efforts, we're trying to make it palatable. We're trying to make it something that we can take in and hold, but we know it's not right. And so it's like we're sort of battling with our own narrative.
0: The next way we hide our lost inner child is by protecting others.
2: Very much. I was a champion of that with my sister, because essentially I was saying, I don't want her to go through what I went through. And so I developed all these ways of looking out for her, where I would watch mom and dad, see how they were doing. Okay, how is she? What's going on? And I recall in the book a story of when my mom and dad were fighting terribly, and I just grabbed my sister, she was young, and took her back into her bedroom and shut the door. That was the biggest act of defiance I had ever done. But I was protecting her. I I don't think I would have done that for myself. I would have sort of sat there on that couch, my stomach clenched, holding my breath, hoping the couch would swallow me up. But- but I would, but I would do that for her
0: now, the next one is something that I see all the time, and this is very much an adult way of hiding it, and that's denying healing is possible. So tell me what you mean by that.
2: I believe that a lot of people put themselves in a very special category where they're saying, "Well, I can never get over this. you know, this is too great. They push it away, and I think what they're saying is they're pushing away. The potential for them to really look at and hold this very hard truth. And so they're creating this elaborate defense mechanism, this elaborate sort of, you know, fortified place where they're very special and they're like, nothing's going to help me. I've been to 10 therapists. No one can help me. And it reinforces, I think, their narrative that they're in this place where. No one can help their specific trauma. So it reinforces the narrative. It keeps them stuck. It gives them an excuse, essentially, not to heal.
0: And then they do a bit of sort of discounting to cope with that. Well, actually, it wasn't really that bad. So don't go there, which sort of follows on to our last one, which is avoiding bad memories.
2: A lot of people will tell me, they'll say, I don't want to go there because it's so painful. And I respect that. And it's not like I want to sit there and sort of dredge up all of this stuff, but I will ask them, I'll, we'll look at those wounded responses that they have in adulthood and how they get big or small, let's say. And then what I like to do is just very gently say, okay, so when you do this response as an adult, how old do you feel? And so I sort of gently began to just help them understand well that's what i did when i was 10 years old or that's what i did at 17 when i would rebel and act out I'm like okay so let's talk about that so we work more on the behavior rather than getting to that that very tender hurt moment in their childhood and so that's that's actually why i began the book that way of talking about those behavioral, those adapted responses to help people kind of gently ease into looking at the more painful memories.
0: I think if you're patient with your therapist and your therapist is patient with you. I mean, what I always say is you don't want to tell me that's fine. But, you know, if as we're working together, memories come up that you would like to talk to me about, you know, in your own time, you know, please bring them here. Cause what generally tends to happen as you're talking about this, they do come up and you sort of feel that Yes, this particular one does feel relevant at the moment, and I do want to share it. So I think they will come up when they almost need to come up.
2: They bubble up when the time is ready, and people will tell me, they're like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to tell you these things. And I'll say, I don't need to know them. I know enough by you being here and you saying you're in emotional pain. You've told me enough. And so let's work on that. And so you're right. I mean, in time, And if the therapist has created a safe container for that person, they're going to feel comfortable in revealing that very tender wounding and bringing that out. And so it takes a therapist to sit with, essentially with themselves, and say, I need to hold space for this person to give this person that time.
0: So one of the most important things you can do is begin to develop better boundaries. Now why are boundaries important?
2: Well, if you think uh, back to my story, I did not have good boundaries in the sense of knowing where I ended and my parents began. And so I took all of their stuff, all of their adult drama and just absorbed it within myself. So there was like there were all these fuzzy boundaries that were happening. But, you know, our boundaries create a sense of emotional safety in our relationships. They're the glue that holds everything together. So when we have poor boundaries, that opens us up to all of this dysfunction to pour in our lives and for us to keep on repeating all of these wounded responses, and that leads to enmeshment and just people losing themselves in other people's lives. So boundaries are supremely important.
0: And you talk about something I've never heard before, which is really fascinating, and those are bubble boundaries. So tell me about bubble boundaries. (laughs) Well,
2: bubble boundaries, the reason you haven't heard of them before is because I invented it. (laughs) Well, I I named it. (laughs) But it sounds a great idea. So tell us about it. So bubble boundaries are essentially when we keep others at arm's length, when we go about our lives with sort of a suit of armour We feel very protected. We're in our bubble. We're in our protected space. We can have relationships with people, but we only take them in so far, and we only extend ourselves so far. So we keep retreating to this place where, for many people, they describe it as not very fulfilling because they're not really living a full, authentic life. They're living a very guarded life. But it 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 is a boundary, but it's not an effective boundary, meaning that it's kind of always on alert in a way. So by conceptualizing this sort of bubble, it helps people realize how they're overusing a boundary system and they're saying, I need to have this up and running all the time. If I don't, I'm going to get hurt. And so what I help them understand is that You know, your boundaries are your toolkit in your toolkit, and it's something that, you know, I can pull up. So if someone says something mean to me or they're attacking me, well, then I can use that boundary, but I don't need to be defensively guarded all the time.
0: So if somebody is becoming more aware that actually they might have a a lost inner child, or they're actually very aware of their inner child, they're not lost, they're knocking on the blooming door how do they start? I mean, it seems important to sort of give that child a voice. Is that a good place
2: to start? Very much. I'm working with a young man and he was talking about how he is really mean to himself and he puts himself down. And I said, let's just take a moment. And I said, what I want you to do is close your eyes. And I want you to imagine this younger part of you That is feeling all of this turmoil and all of this pain. You know, and I asked him, Can you can you sort of picture that? Yes, I can picture that. What does he need? And he said, Well, he needs to be helped. He needs to be reassured. Okay, do that. Picture yourself hugging, holding that part, quieting, calming that part down. And so that's what I would just encourage your listeners to begin to do is to pay attention to that wounding. The wounding within us really wants a voice, just wants to be heard. So it's like it will keep sending you these internal emails saying, look at me, open me, pay attention to me. And so that keeps happening, that recycled pain keeps happening over and over until we begin to hold space for that and say, okay, let me, what are you trying to tell me? What is the message here? And just begin that way, very slowly, very simply. And when you
0: do get your lost inner child, please be tender with it, because from time to time, you know, my clients, their lost inner child will show up in the room because um, something has happened. And when you actually say, thank you for showing me this part of you, they find that a real surprise because they feel this one is this is the bit that's got to be
2: hidden the most that's right and and of course you're when you do that they then feel seen so all of them feel seen and heard and valued and you're exactly right and what i like to do is is reinforce with folks is like look how hard you were working as as a child look how hard you were putting your energy into making this very dysfunctional situation functional. So it's about honoring that. But so often, as with my wounded tools, they don't work so well in our adult life. But we keep on using them over and over because that's all we know.
0: And actually, as an adult, you have a whole range of different tools you can use. I mean, you have the keys to a car, you have a bank account, for example, which, you know, you had none of those opportunities when you were a kid. Just think you could have got in the car and gone for a drive and left them behind for a couple of hours,
2: couldn't you? (laughs) The idea is tempting. (laughs) (laughs) So is it
0: helpful to actually give your lost inner child an age?
2: Well, there are two ways to look at it. Most folks will say, well, nothing bad happened to me. There wasn't one big event. And I'll say, well, but I hear that you have a lot of self-doubt. So that seems to be a theme that arcs across your childhood. So then we work with the theme of that self-doubt. But others, myself and, and others I've worked with, have had specific traumas that have occurred at at ages where they're really standouts. So when we look at their timeline, those are things, well, mom and dad divorced when I was nine years old and I had to choose who I had to live with. And so that is is really emotionally traumatic time for that person. And so that could be nine, could be an age of wounding, and maybe 17 when they almost got kicked out of high school could be another age of wounding. And so we work with that. But it's the idea that the age is not so important. It really is what I'm trying to do with that is to get folks to begin to recognize who is stepping in front of them when they're triggered. So when they're going about their adult life and all of a sudden they, a trigger happens, someone says something or they have a situation, then it's their nine-year-old or their 17-year-old that's stepping in front of them, I say driving the bus sort of thing, making a lot of decisions, that when that storm has passed, then the adult self has to clean that stuff up. And so that's what I want to get folks to recognize, conceptualize this idea, because they will feel it. They're like, I'll say, how old did you feel when you were yelling at that guy who cut you off in traffic? He's like, "I, I felt like a kid. I'm like, exactly. You know, So it helps that.
0: And I think that we can visualize the kid much better if we know how old the child is, because I think the Mm -hmm. reaction at nine is very different from the reaction at 17. So it's perfectly possible to have more than one lost inner child.
2: Well, it's the idea is essentially still the same child, we could say, is how the ages are representing. It's like a frozen moment in time, because that slice of time at nine or 17 we did not emotionally mature from that. Chronologically, time went on, but emotionally, we're sort of stuck. Some parts of us are stuck at 9 and 17.
0: So what other functional response tools do we need?
2: Well, these are things of, of having clarity over what's good for us, what's not good for us. So I, I reference internal boundaries and external boundaries. And so when we have Good functional response tools is where we're living more authentically. It's where we are knowing where we end and others begin. It's where we're saying, we're speaking our truth and we're saying to others, this is what I need. It's where we're doing things that are healthy for us, resting or going to the gym, doing all those things that we know we quote unquote should do, but we're not doing. So it essentially effective adulting.
0: And are there other things that you can suggest that would help us ease the pain of our child? Because we can have all these adult tools, but if they come and grab the steering wheel on the bus, we've got giving them an age. I think we need some other coping mechanisms, not coping mechanisms, things to help them heal. What do you suggest?
2: So really, it's, it's about identifying how it's showing up when this, these wounded reactions are, are happening. And then what I talk about is symbolic letter writing or healing letters. And this is the correspondence between our lost inner child and our adult self. So what I have folks do is, let's say, going back to our example of the nine-year-old, write from the nine-year-old's perspective, what was going on in the house at the time? What were the emotions you were having? What were your challenges? What was your pain? course, you have to extend yourself kind of outside of yourself to write as your nine-year-old self. But you're like, well, this was happening and it was awful. And and I would go to school and I would just want to come home and all that sort of stuff. And then I have them write from the adult perspective back to the child perspective. And so the adult is coming in as a, a functional parent figure or an older sibling sort of figure. And that letter coming back is giving perspective. It's saying, I understand. I see how hard you were working. And those feelings you were having were really hard for you to go through. And I know that you're frustrated and I know you're confused, but let me give you a clue as far as what's going on here. And so that helps to really acknowledge the wounding of the inner child. And the inner child is like, oh, I feel heard. I know it sounds sort of out there, you know, that you know this idea, <laughs> you're nah, shaking your head, no. <laughs> not at all. I, it's just the sort of wicked thing I like doing. <laughs> but what I find is the letters back and forth give the lost inner child a voice. And so, again, when that wounding is heard, acknowledged, it calms down you know, because we're essentially acknowledging, it's the meta of acknowledging the pain within ourselves. We're stepping back, we're seeing ourselves more wholly.
0: So what would you write to your lost inner child
2: now? Me personally? Yeah,
0: you personally now, because this child, although not lost, is still there,
2: isn't it? He's still there, and he doesn't show up in a wounded way anymore because I'm setting effective boundaries. You know, the lost inner child keeps looking to the adult to set consistent boundaries in the world so that the lost inner child doesn't have to step forward with those adapted responses. Because if you remember, all those wounded responses are all about protection. So as an adult, if I am setting effective, consistent boundaries, then the inner child is like, okay, I'm cool. This is good. I don't need to show up. I'm safe.
0: Let's turn that into a letter that you might write today to your inner child.
2: So I would say, little Bobby, I am so proud of how hard you worked. I see today how much effort you put into making that household functional. And everything you did has helped me become the man I am today. Everything that how hard you were working, everything helped shape who I am today. So thank you so much. You have your love for mom and dad, for your sister, for the family, has extended beyond anything you would have ever imagined. And it's helped me become authentic today.
0: And you can step down now because I'm in charge. That's right.
2: And it's feeling that you can feel your heart center just Bloom and expand and feel all warm and cozy because of that sense of wholeness. You know, so we're Jung said the inner child is always trying to return to a sense of wholeness. And so that's what this process is about. So it's, it's the arc of we were born. We sort of go through all these experiences as a child. And now it's the unlearning of all of those adapted responses that aren't healthy for us so we can return to our center
0: and as you were talking i could feel my heart opening up i mean it was it was really beautiful and i hope that that would give people a sort of an idea of where they're trying to get to because you're honoring that child you're not you're not sort of exorcising it and i think that is really important to understand because there is a temptation to
2: want to tell them to go home sort of evict them go go well I, i have had many people over the years they'll come in and they'll bring their letters and they're like i am so mad at you and i just want you to go away and they're just sort of damning themselves i'm like wait a minute this is not the idea you know so it's like really helping to give that tender sweetness, you know, essentially what we're doing as adults is giving to ourselves what we did not receive in childhood. So that's a big part of this work, is really honoring what we really needed in childhood, but we didn't have the words, we didn't have any means to ask for that.
0: And if you're giving it to your child today... I think that your lost in a child could have it too, because sometimes people are tender with their children, but actually really rather cruel to their lost in a child.
2: Well, yes, and the same thing. I think uh, what I see, people are much more tender to their pets than they are actually to their children, or to your point, to themselves. And so I will have to, if they're having a real struggle accessing that within them, I'm like, well, how are you with your dog? I'm like, oh, well, I love my dog and I take care of my dog and I, you know, do all these special things. I'm like, it's the same idea. I need you to do that with the little boy inside of you, the little girl inside of you. I need you to give that part that tender love.
1: Yeah.
0: At this precise moment, my dog is sheltering under my desk. He's too big to sit on my lap, but if he could, he would. He's a very sort of, um, self-contained dog but after there's been a storm he has to literally sit on my feet and that's where he is at the moment so you know I'm being kind to my dog and uh, you know I have to be kind to my inner child as well. That's right. We're going to look at a practical case in just a moment and um, I'll also tell you details about how you can send in a letter to us as well.
1: the meaningful life with andrew g marshall please follow us on twitter like us on facebook and visit our website andrewg forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits
0: what we've been talking about today has got you thinking about things from the past that you would like to share with somebody. Maybe you would like to write a letter into the programme, and I can share it with one of my experts that I've sourced from around the world. If you want to do that, you can come to my website, www. Dot andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find a form and you can also sign up for my newsletter as well. It'd be lovely if you could do that too. And this is a letter that I've received. I'm coming up to the first anniversary of Discovery Day and getting very anxious. Everything is a constant trigger of that awful few weeks last year. I've been reading and listening to podcasts, which makes things more understandable. My problem is my husband won't talk about the affair. He says he's answered my questions many times, and he has. We're making good progress in lots of ways, but it is the triggers that cause the problems. We've been married for 40 years, and up until the affair, which lasted a couple of years, we seem to have had a good marriage. I'm not making excuses for him, but we had so many things happened at the same time. I had severe clinical depression for two and a half years the death of his elderly parents, and my younger sister. We were defrauded by another member of our family. Talk about a perfect storm. Unfortunately for me, I still think he has feelings for the other woman, and the intimate side of our marriage is pretty much non-existent. Not sure where to go from here, as I love him very much. So, triggers is the word that springs out to me. What hit you,
2: Robert? What really landed on me was the cumulative loss that this couple has gone through and really complicated things. Losing his parents, losing her sister, being defrauded by a friend, her clinical depression. So I just see the weight of all of these, uh, and of course the betrayal trauma loss, I see the weight of all of these things really heavy on this couple. So I, I appreciate what she's saying about the triggers. But I think that there's so much here to explore as far as helping her to unpack this very complicated situation that they've been going through for a few years now. And do you think she's
0: actually unpacked them yet? Or do you think they're sitting there and are being revived by the triggers as well?
2: I think the triggers, um, are just putting all of this into a recycling pattern. So I think that there are are things here to unpack. How I work with couples when there's a betrayal trauma is that the betrayed spouse gets to determine how long the questioning goes on. And what I, what I give them is this analogy of a path of the unfaithful partner has started on this path and they're pretty far down the path. And then when the betrayed spouse learns of that, they're just getting up on the path. So that path is brand new. And so the the betrayed partner is like, what is all of this stuff and what's going on? But the unfaithful partner is way far down the path. And so the unfaithful partner is, well, what do you mean? I'm over that now. I'm not doing that anymore. I love you. Let's just move on. But the betrayed spouse is like, no, I'm hurting and help me understand this and and let's go through this. And so it really is about how to bring in this couple so they can have a sense of collaboration. Because they're, they're saying that they're on the same team, but they're operating as very different entities here.
0: So how do you get them on the same team?
2: Well, I think that there needs to be individual therapy for both of them because he's going through his own stuff. We just know a little bit about him. But what stood out for me, you know, projecting into his experience is like, okay, is this guy looking for an escape hatch from all of this trauma? Is he looking for this like, you know, safe place to go where he doesn't have to deal with all of this stuff? And here she is in the midst of it sort of holding it all together and saying, what's going on? He's escaping. I'm staying here. And she's saying, let's come together. So I think, I think that they both have things to really unpack to be able to then come together in a couple's counselling way.
0: And there's a lot of grief here as well, and you're working on grief a lot. Any advice on how to deal with the grief?
2: Well, grief work is ultimately all about honoring. So it's about honoring the the losses that they've had, naming them, coming up with a way to put this into a context within the scope of their lives and saying, This happened, you know, how how has he honored the loss of his parents? How has she honored the loss of her sister? You know, looking at that grief work, you know, how have both of them honored the betrayal trauma? You know, how have they integrated it? I mean, ultimately, that's what grief work is about. It's like those things that happen to them are part of their tapestry now. So it's like they can't undo it. It's, it's happened. So let's sit with that, hold that, honor it, create space for that so that they can then integrate it more wholly into their lives instead of always wanting to push it out, kick it out. So it, it really is creating the safe place for that.
0: And in a way, it's exactly the same process that we've been talking about with the lost in a child, really, isn't it?
2: That's right. That's right. It comes down to the acknowledgement. It comes down to the sense of what's going on with me? What's the loudest thing inside of me right now? What's the pain that I'm holding? And it's giving that pain, that hurt, a voice. That's really all it wants. So, you know, I encourage folks to just take out a piece of paper and just start writing stream of consciousness. This is what's going on in me. And if I could tell anyone anything, this is what I would say. And then when I've done that, I do that regularly. And when I do that, I feel this sense of, okay, I can breathe again because I've given that my wisdom. I've given that pain a voice. I've given that part of me that's ancient. That's ancient. A way to come out of me and to show me who I am.
0: So maybe using the same kind of image, we've got a hurt adult here that needs to,
2: you need to, to soothe as well. Exactly. And so the, with grief work, it's looking at, so she's coming in. What we have to remember is that it sounds like she was coming into a lot of these experiences with clinical depression. So it's looking at okay, what's the depression and what's the grief? And it's unpacking all of these different elements and naming them and holding space for them. You know, what I see essentially is uh are all these circles, you know, like take a page and draw all these circles, and in the circles would be loss of sister, loss of parents, the betrayal trauma, and then creating a way to then interact with that. Experience and giving it a name and what are the feelings that wrap around each of those fears? Again, it's a way to help us conceptualize the pain so that we can then more fully embrace it.
0: And it might be worth looking and seeing if this does link back to your childhood. You know, were you told as a child, "Oh, that's not important. Don't worry about that." You know, and is what your husband is doing actually revitalizing those old hurts as well? So there might be some old trauma that's coming back um, at the same time as the trauma today.
2: Uh, you're right, and what you often see are um, is the reaction. So, in other words, the inner child, the lost or wounded inner child speaks in absolutes. And so, he always does this to me. She never does this. Well, those absolutes, that's your clue that that's the inner child poking out.
0: So we've been talking about healing the lost inner child. I think we probably need to talk about healing the wounded relationship in our bonus material. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Unfortunately, we're running out of time in the main podcast, but um, I have to ask you as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful, Robert?
2: My life is meaningful because my sense of purpose is what creates a meaningful life for me. A sense of purpose, a sense of the acts of service in my work, in writing my books. So at the end of the day, I lay my head on the pillow, and I say, okay, this is what I created today. This is what how I contributed today. So it gives meaning to my life. That purpose gives meaning. It helps me know that, I guess in a legacy sort of way, This is what I'm giving out to the world from everything that that I've gone through and what I understand now. So in in a sort of helpful, altruistic way, that's what gives my life meaning.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being my guest on The Meaningful Life. It doesn't stop here, though. If you are a supporter, we'll be talking about how to heal your wounded relationship. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details.
1: You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts Healy, sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza, and I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.